Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, although I'm not sure the last one really has political overtones to it. It's just plain crazy. We also want to let you know today we're sponsored by Stamps.com. Right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial of Stamps.com plus free postage and a digital scale. Much more on that a little bit later in the podcast. Jim, I know the real good martini for you is that the Jets have already effectively come to terms with a number of of free agents, so you're excited about that. And We talked about Le'Veon Bell possibly becoming a Jet uh, later this week as well. That's still considered likely, but now I've heard the Bears are in the mix, so I fear our attack ads might be coming back soon. Yeah, obviously it comes down to uh, whether he likes deep dish or New York-style pizza. We all are, are on the edge of our seats for that one. Also, thank you for that receiver from yours who's been on the team and caught a whole nine passes last year. Uh, apparently, he's really good at special teams, so maybe that's what's going on there. But, uh, yeah, hoping he fits in that mold of the tradition of Thomas Jones and Brandon Marshall and other guys who came from the Jets for a year and were great and, and then weren't so much. But uh, Matt we'll, Forte. We'll use him while we got him. Yeah, like the great Matt Forte. All right, so let's get into our good martini now. Jim and Nancy Pelosi's in the good martini today, and so is Adam Schiff. So uh, buckle up for this one. Washington Post magazine did an interview with Nancy Pelosi, and she says, quote, I'm not for impeachment. This is news. I'm going to give you some news right now because I haven't said this to any press person before. But since you asked, and I've been thinking about this, impeachment is so divisive to the country that unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country. And he's just not worth it. Adam Schiff, who, of course, has been leading the charge on the uh, Russia investigation from the House Democratic perspective for the past couple of years, quote, if the evidence isn't sufficient to win bipartisan support for this, putting the country through a failed impeachment isn't a good idea. So, uh, Jim, your colleague Andy McCarthy, who has written a book about having to build a political case for impeachment, uh, points out that uh, unless something pops up in these subsequent House Democrat investigations that um, they're not going to have the votes to convict. So their backup plan, essentially, is to make Trump completely unelectable by constantly drumming up stuff against him. Yeah, this is kind of surprising and kind of weird just because uh, while the ever the the, you know, political logic of everything that Pelosi was saying makes sense. This is not the message we've been getting from Democrats, certainly not from other Democrats, and that uh, Pelosi herself tended to try to play it coy. Um, for much of 2018, you saw some Democrats who were openly saying, we're going to impeach the, you know what, to use the term that Congressman Tlaib used. Um, you're going to also, you also saw them saying, well, it's premature to say, let's see what goes on with the Mueller investigation. Uh, depending on what that finds, that could be a big part of our decision, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that has been kind of their, their fig leaf here. Now Pelosi is kind of letting a lot of the pro- these progressive grassroots know, guess what? You open up the Christmas present on Christmas morning and there's nothing there. Um, Greg, I realize, of course, I'm probably, that's a not really great metaphor. Uh, progressives probably celebrate winter solstice. <laughs> um, but, and, and they probably excuse gift giving because of materialism or, or it's part of capitalism or something like that. Um, but the just being Democrats very much believe that, yes, we're going to impeach President Trump. And now Pelosi's saying, look, you know, I suppose this could change based on what Mueller finds, but you're never going to. You know. And the great irony is that Schiff comes out and says something very similar 
uh, yesterday. Now, probably he's responding to what she's saying and doesn't want to be, have a huge amount of daylight between the two of them. But, um, you know, a lot of people, including Charlie Cook, are speculating whether this means uh, that they've gotten some inkling that the Mueller report is going to come out and it's not going to be a, a smoking gun or shocking or the sort of thing that's going to build a broad consensus in favor of an impeachment. I, I think what, you know, Pelosi is saying here is actually kind of an acknowledgement of something I've been saying for quite a while now. Look, Nixon resigned. Bill Clinton was impeached but uh, acquitted by the Senate. Same thing with Andrew Jackson. We've never forcibly removed a president from office in this country before. If you're going to do this, it's got to be a smoking gun. It's got to be no wiggle room. It's got to be no gray area. you got to catch him red-handed. It's got to be a slam-dunk argument because otherwise you're, you're the next time around, ultimately the, the gist of most Democrats is I really don't like President Trump. Therefore, he must be removed from office. And if that's the criteria, everybody's going to go out and use that criteria for every other president uh, beforehand. Now, it's interesting, though, I will get and I mentioned this in the morning. Joel, I'll give the progressive grassroots a molecule or two of credit here. When Republicans decided to go forward with impeachment in December 1998, the memory may recall the midterms went very badly for them. They're expected to make big gains. They did not make big gains. Uh, the public was not on their side. The public, as much as they thought you know, Bill Clinton's behavior was terrible, did not believe that it rose to the level of removal from office. Now, Republicans in the House looked at that. Henry Hyde and, and Lindsey Graham, a young Lindsey Graham at that time, and, and all the House impeachment managers looked at that and said, you know, we know the American people have come to this conclusion, but we just flat out think that they're wrong. This is a violation of the law, and we must prosecute this. We must hold him accountable well, let the Senate make its own decisions, but he violated the law. He committed perjury. He suborned perjury. Here's our argument. The two articles of impeachment went over to the Senate. The Senate deliberated, took about two months. And as we all know, the Senate decided not to remove Bill Clinton from office. Grassroots progressives might very well say, hey, you know what? If they, they believe they were doing the right thing, we believe we're doing the right thing. It doesn't matter if the polling isn't good. It doesn't matter if this hurts our chances in 2020. We need accountability for this, and we need every single senator on the record of do they approve, do they believe what Trump has done you know, warrants his removal from office or not. And wow. so there's a part of me wants to say, hey, you know what? Good luck storming the castle, fellas. <laughs> you, know, you want to go ahead and do that? You probably can. My suspicion is most Americans who are not diehard progressive Democrats would look at something in late 2019 or sometime in 2020, an impeachment effort against the president, barring some unbelievable smoking gun, Trump and Putin cackling on a telephone line uh, sort of situ- you know, evidence. In short of that, they're going to look at it as a giant waste of, of time and effort. And uh, you know, it may very well improve Trump's chances of reelection. So um, good luck, guys. Go right ahead. Be my guest. Yeah, it's going to be fun watching that uh, new growing progressive wing demand it anyway, though. So uh, AOC's already said there's a war for the party. So we'll see if this becomes one of the fronts for that. Almost certainly this is going to be the big flashpoint, Greg. So if, if you are a uh, radical progressive and you want to change Nancy Pelosi's mind, I can't think of a better way to do that than a strongly worded letter. And uh, the best way to uh, help get that strongly worded letter to Washington, D.C., where I'm sure she'll be the one opening the letter, is Stamps.com. Postage rates have gone up again, but thankfully Stamps.com can ease the pain with big discounts off post office retail rates. With Stamps.com, you save five cents off every single first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. 
That kind of savings really adds up, especially for small businesses. Plus, Stamps.com is completely online, which saves you time. No more of those inconvenient trips to the post office. Stamps.com automatically calculates and prints the exact amount of postage that you need for every letter or package you send. You will never overpay or underpay again. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, or any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They send you a free digital scale, which automatically calculates the exact postage you need. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based upon your needs. Stamps.com will save you money. They give you postage discounts that you can't get at the post office, including five cents off of every first class stamp. Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do from your desk for less. And right now, three Martini Lunch listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial of Stamps.com, plus free postage and a digital scale. See for yourself why over 700,000 small businesses use Stamps.com. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in three Martini. That's Stamps.com. Enter three Martini. All right, Jim, let's move along to our bad martini now. And for that, we head to the Big Apple. If you're over the age of probably 50, 55, this is going to sound pretty familiar to you. New York City is careening closer to all-out financial bankruptcy for the first time since Mayor Abraham Beam ran the city more than 40 years ago. As tax-fleeced businesses and individuals flee en masse and city public spending surges into the stratosphere, Financial analysts say Gotham is perilously near total fiscal disaster. No, Trump didn't write this. This was uh, somebody else for the New York New York Post. Long-term debt is now more than $81,100 per household, and Mayor Bill de Blasio is ramping up to spend as much as $3 billion more in the new budget than the current $89.2 billion. Quote, the city is running a deficit and could be in a real difficult spot if we had a recession or a further flight of individuals because of tax reform, said Milton Azrati, chief economist at Vested. New York is already in a difficult financial spot, but it would be in an impossible situation if we had any kind of setback. So, Jim, uh, New York City went through a really rough stretch back in the 1970s. Uh, It's obviously been on better footing in the intervening time, particularly in the Giuliani years, and to his credit on on the financial side, to some extent, Michael Bloomberg as well. But uh, big spending libs, putting that balance sheet in peril once again. Yeah. Boy, Greg, I don't know about you. I'm just sitting here thinking, where is Gerald Ford when we need him? (laughs) For those who don't recall, it was either New York Post or New York Daily News headline, Ford to City Drop Dead. (laughs) Uh, Many people thought was some sort of... uh, horrible callousness and and contributing to Ford losing in in 1976. These days, we think of bailouts as bad things. (laughs) Back then, it was this, how dare the President of the United States not just send a giant pile of money to New York City? Don't they know who we are? Um, Look, this is what happens. There are certain locations in in the country where you can charge higher taxes because you have people who will always be willing to live there. I'm sure New York sees it this way. I'm sure Los Angeles sees it that way. San Francisco, maybe Chicago. We're a big city. Uh, We have lots of people, prime real estate, thriving businesses, lots of opportunities. This is where people want to live. We can charge higher, uh, higher taxes because we provide better services. 
the thing is, after a while, people start reevaluating whether it's such a good whether it's such a good deal. Sure, there's prestige in having a Manhattan high rise as your your home address or something like that. But in the end, you know what? Maybe someplace out in New Jersey or Connecticut or someplace like that seems every bit as good. More space. Are you willing to become a commuter? At some point, does the uh, the grief and aggravation of living in the city just not worth it? Uh, and oh, by the way, I can't help but notice that this comes, you know, not that long after people suddenly learn that they can no longer they can only deduct the first ten thousand dollars in their state and local taxes. Now, look, Michael Bloomberg, for all of his flaws, and you and I have gone on at length about them, uh, generally wanted to keep the the books uh, of of New York City balanced. You know, the federal government can borrow and and almost unlimited amounts of money. That's how we ended up with you know twenty some trillion dollars in debt. Um, but the, basically, states and localities don't have that option. They can issue bonds uh, and pay them back over a period of time, but that always assumes on people considering your bonds being good. The people who buy bonds can look at your balance sheet just like everybody else, and if your tax base is eroding, if people are moving away and not paying as much in tax base and you keep committing to ever bigger uh, long-term spending projects, all of a sudden people are like, wait a minute, this does not look like a safe investment. I don't know if the city is going to be in a situation to, uh, to pay that back. Oh, by the way, you know what pe- makes people really nervous about buying your bonds, Greg? What's that? Headlines about you going bankrupt. <laughs> Lo and behold, people don't want to loan you money anymore or something like that. So um, you could argue this is the, the consequence of several cycles of Bill de Blasio. Um, I'm just going to, you know, you and I like to go on some unexpected pop culture tangents, and I'm not previewing the next uh, martini here. I'm just going to observe. Greg, you and I have not talked this kind of music very much. Any thoughts on Billy Joel? I like Billy Joel. Okay, he was the soundtrack of, of my teen years. So let, listen to a ton of him. But, you know, See the Lights Go Out on Broadway took place in 2017. <laughs> and it was all about, it's, it's this weird semi-apocalyptic sci-fi story about New York City effectively being abandoned. I've been people concluding that it's ungovernable. They picked the Yankees up for free. Um, and the idea, a lot of people said this, you know, weird, you know, eerily prophetic imagery about 9-11 and all kinds of stuff like that. But the whole idea is that by, you know, this was written in the 70s. Um, son of Sam, uh, all, all kinds of problems in New York City, the taxi driver days, uh, Times Square being an open sewer of sleaze, all that kind of stuff, the bad old days in New York City. And Billy Joel, you know, having grown up in the area and having loved New York City, wrote this as this sad song of the, the final abandonment of New York City of being ungovernable. So, uh, Greg, is it possible Billy Joel just missed by a few years? Could be. Could be. Yeah. There you go. So uh, he, was, he was a man ahead of his time. He was. He didn't start the fire either, but I will. No. <laughs> Do you know who did start the fire, Greg? Bill de Blasio. Ah, oh, that was very, very good. You say Adele, who set fire to the rain. <laughs> yes, very good. I also think that uh, we've now found out that when you drop and kill a groundhog, you get six more years max of fiscal solvency. There you go. <laughs> Oh, and oh, by the way, this is not, you know, one of our martinis. This is just kind of a bonus. They're getting rid of meat on Mondays in New York City public schools. Oh, jeez. Run this man for president, Democrats. No wonder everyone's leaving town. That's hideous. That's absolutely yeah. hideous. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, I do mean crazy. And we stick with the celebrities here. NBC News with this version of the story. Hollywood actresses Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman are among at least 40 people charged in a large-scale college entrance exam cheating scheme, according to court documents unsealed Tuesday. The alleged scheme focused on getting students admitted to elite universities as recruited athletes regardless of their athletic abilities and helping potential students cheat on their college exams 
according to the indictment unsealed in Boston. Laughlin, best known for her role in the sitcom Full House, and Huffman, who starred in the ABC hit show Desperate Housewives, were charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services fraud. The FBI recorded phone calls involving the celebrities and a cooperating witness, according to the criminal complaint. Here's a couple of clips from the press conference that took place shortly before we started recording. First up is the U.S. attorney for Boston, Andrew Lelling. We have charged three people who organized these scams, two SAT or ACT exam administrators, one exam proctor, one college administrator, nine coaches at elite schools, and 33 parents who paid enormous sums to guarantee their children's admission to certain schools. And just how big were those sums? Well, here's Joseph Bonavalanta, the special agent in charge from the FBI. This is not a case where parents were acting in the best interests of their children. This is a case where they flaunted their wealth, sparing no expense to cheat the system so so they could set their children up for success with the best education money could buy, literally. Some spent anywhere from 200,000 to six and a half million dollars for guaranteed admission. Six and a half million dollars in some cases. Jim, I expect this on Wisteria Lane, but uh, I have to ask in the case of Lori Laughlin of Full House and Hallmark fame, whatever happened to predictability? Oh, very good, Greg. I, I just want to point out, this feels like a crossover with the Jim and Mickey show debating, pop, <laughs> talking about pop culture. This is, you know, you've got my three martini lunch in my, my tea jams. You've got my tea jams in my pop culture. Um, this is, so when I first saw the headline today, I really thought, like, you know, we said it was a Felicity Huffman, Lori Laughlin, among actresses, CEOs involved in alleged college admissions cheating scam. Greg, I thought it had been put together by an algorithm <laughs> for clickbait and something had gone terribly. That Wait, two, old, two older actresses who kind of been out of the news for like, wait, what? CEO? What? what? So, first of all, the, the first ex- exhibition here is that everyone gets to uh, show off their snobbery by saying, wait. You bribed people to get into USC. <laughs> but then the, you know, a little bit more seriously, and this this maybe dissolve, deserves an own separate edition of the podcast on this. Greg, it's t- you know, I, I want to bring together the entire academic world, all the administrators, university presidents, good chunk of the faculty, those million dollar a year coaches, and and you know, NCAA and the whole crowd. Just sit them all in one big stadium. And blow it up like Bane. No. Um, and they kind of say, guys, you're, you're, rep- you know, you're starting to write checks that your record can't cash. Right? You, you really have a very high opinion of yourself as the shapers of tomorrow and all that kind of stuff. But it seems like every couple of months we get either some scandal like this, not as bizarre as this one. We've talked about the NCAA and the, the awful state of college athletics, how it's basically become a junior league for the pros and how education gets put aside for this. Um, I mean, just for starters, Greg, wouldn't you assume the tuition would be high enough that they wouldn't need bribery anymore? Right. Isn't that kind of gilding the lily? You sell one of the most overpriced things in America and you want bribe. This is when, you know, they want you to, you, you, would they expect you to bust your own table and they expect tips? You know, <laughs> you know I, I said yesterday, is our children learning? Universities and colleges are, one, you know, we've been arguing for a while whether they're giving their money's worth. Two, We've always known that they have slots set aside for legacies. If your parents went to a college, there's a very good chance you're going to be allowed in. And we can argue about the fairness of that. But it's one of those things like, well, wait a second. Almost everybody in America, everybody who applied for college, 
probably got rejected by one. And they had this nagging feeling of why, why did I get rejected? Was I really not good enough? Or was it a, an affirmative action issue? Or was it they had to, you know, some administrator's son or some alumni's son had to, you know, get, get a slot that I was supposed to have there. The observation that I like best came from, uh, I believe it was Bess Cal, who said, now that the Hollywood bribery ring has been busted, the only thing that's helping rich kids get into college are legacy admissions, private tutors, board member connections, unpaid summer internships, interview coaches, and a lifetime of Ivy-bound grooming. At some point, academia has to be held accountable for this. I don't know if government's the right institution uh, for this, but it does kind of seem, considering the enormous amount of taxpayer money that go to universities, both in terms of direct funding of public universities and all of the underwriting of college loans that is done by the federal government, uh, I think it's very clear we deserve better. Yes, this is a weird, wacky, funny, you know, uh, bizarre scandal, but it does, you know, point to something. Uh, uh, there's there's a there's a darkness that there's a there's a greed that there's a um, corruption at the heart of higher education that has been kind of neglected for too long. And just one last observation there, Greg. Um, I, I have no familiarity with Felicity Huffman's daughter. This is where I usually pass things off to Mickey, who keeps track of these sorts of things. Um, the big, but the, apparently her daughter's all, you know, already a social media influencer, Greg. Oh boy. Okay. Now your girls are young. My boys are a couple of years away from that, but when they become teenagers, if they ever say, dad, I'm a social media influencer, I'm taking away all of your screen time for a month. <laughs> You're not influencing anything, kiddo. Uh, you know, the, the idea that, you know, so I guess the idea is she's kind of this, you know, Hollywood socialite offspring of famous people type circumstance so it may and she apparently on her instagram or youtube or one of those videos talked about how much she wasn't all that interested in studying but was still excited about going to college because of the party scene and um, if that's what you're working with you know maybe it would take six million dollars <laughs> to get the admissions board to say yeah sure bring her on in this is good this is usc material a number one great you know back when i was going to college in the mesozoic era um, I had this attitude of, you know, this is a completely unsustainable system. Uh, it's ridiculous. The cost of tuition has increased way faster than the rate of inflation. A lot of that money seems to be going towards more administrators. A lot of that money seems to be going to new state-of-the-art facilities, which are nice. But again, if you're putting the cost of a higher education out of the range of the middle class, you've gen- you're generating a major problem for America just to have nicer dorms. And I don't think that the cost-benefit analysis checks out on that. Um, that conversation is a long overdue, Greg, maybe now that we've got some, some, you know, kind of faded from the spotlight celebrities involved now it can become a national issue, Greg. <laughs> I liked one tweet that said, you realize your kids couldn't get in the honorable way to a school that graduated Will Ferrell, right? Ah, I, I kind of, you know, I'd like to hear from Betsy DeVos right now. Seems like, a, you know, a good area for our secretary of education to weigh in and kind of make the argument this is not what Americans, you know, this, this is just simply Americans deserve better. And it's time for a new uh, atmosphere of accountability in, uh, in American higher education. Amazing. Amazing. So the full house jokes are flying on Twitter. Literally, uh, Lori Laughlin's name was not trending. Aunt Becky was trending. So the fact that ah. our culture has been thoroughly celebrified is, uh, is, is clearly evident today. On that note, Jim, uh, we'll be back to more directly political stuff tomorrow, I have a feeling, and we'll talk to you then. 
See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And don't forget to get connected with Stamps.com, particularly if you're a small business owner. Four-week trial free, plus free postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in 3Martini. And tune in again on Wednesday for the next 3Martini Lunch.